Well, good morning. It's a joy uh, and a privilege to be opening up God's Word with you as we continue our summer series looking at major themes through the book of Proverbs uh, with the goal, as the subtitle indicates, as you can see there, of applying God's truth to everyday life. And it's important that right now we're reminded of that goal. Okay, we have 25, maybe 30 minutes ahead of us. We need to have a clear aim. We're not here just for another uh, injection of information into our brains, I trust. We're not here for a momentary spark of inspiration that potentially fades over the next day or week as our attention's given to other items. No, we're here to be transformed by the word of the living God, to look into the mirror and to behold the Lord and to be changed. And so my hope is that today, that you and I, that we would walk away from this service with a clear and direct vision for how we can be more faithful in our actions and more biblically aligned in our thinking, in our behavior. You see, we're uh, talking about a uh, topic this morning that I think is one of the most relevant of our day. A topic that we uh, think about, we, we manage, uh, we deal with on a daily basis, potentially. That topic is the topic of money. And specifically, we're looking at poverty and wealth. And the Bible has a lot to say on this topic. Nehemiah 2, verse 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will cause us to prosper. Malachi 3, verse 10. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you blessing until there is no more need. John 14, 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. Man, things are starting off pretty good. Prospering, blessing until there is no more need. Asking anything in the name of Christ and he will do it. But, but wait, there's a little bit more. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and, and then come follow me. Mark 10, 21. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James 5, 1-2. Wait, what? Are, are, which one is it? Right? Are we to expect uh, the blessings of heaven to pour down on us if only we ask God? Or are we to sell everything that we have and just give it all away 
or anticipate these miseries that are going to come upon us. You feel the tension that exists here. You see, the Bible has so much to say that, in fact, it's very easy for us to be imbalanced in our theology. It's very easy to make the argument that God loves the rich guys. Just look at Abraham, look at Job, look at the kings of Israel and Judah that he blesses. But you see, it's also easy to make the argument that God hates the rich guys. Look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, or the book of James, like I've just mentioned. And so the question becomes, how should we think about poverty and wealth? How do we understand this seemingly paradoxical tension that exists in the Bible? Is wealth good or bad? Is poverty good or bad? There's no doubt that Compared to any other time in history, we are on average among the wealthiest people to walk the face of this earth. And so wherever we fall on the spectrum really of wealth in our day, we need to have a clear answer for how God would have us handle it. Well, the book of Proverbs overwhelmingly paints a picture of a kind of wealth that is good and true. Okay, a vision of wealth that is honorable, that is morally excellent and virtuous. And that wealth is contrasted against a dishonorable wealth, a morally bankrupt kind of wealth. And obviously there are key characteristics that differentiate the two. But I believe if we can understand what constitutes honorable wealth, we will be supremely helped in navigating the tension that we feel when it comes to this topic in the Bible. So in the book of Proverbs, first we see this, that honorable wealth is acquired on the diligent path, okay? Honorable wealth is acquired on the diligent path, Proverbs 13, verse 11. Now, we're going to be jumping around to a bunch of different Proverbs, but I want to give you one kind of text that you can anchor the point in. So for that, for this point, it's Proverbs 13, 11. It says this, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Another verse, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And lastly, Proverbs 28.20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. You see, the first key difference lies in the means of acquiring wealth. Proverbs contrasts one who is careful, who is patient, who is diligent in their labor, one who gathers little by little versus one who is after wealth that is hastily gained. You know, that get-rich-quick mentality that wants the results but doesn't want to put in the work. And we're told that that kind of wealth is bankrupt. You know, we see the effects of this in real life all the time. I think of just that classic lottery winner example, right? Someone receives sudden wealth that they haven't worked for. And because they haven't worked for it, they don't understand its value. And because their capacity to manage their money hasn't grown in sync with their gain, they don't have sufficient skill to manage it. And what happens? It very easily gets squandered, 
right? And even brings about potentially greater destruction upon their lives, including poverty. Friends, Proverbs communicates a simple principle. If you work hard and make wise decisions, generally you will increase in economic prosperity. And that is a good thing. But just remember, these Proverbs are general principles of life. Right? Not guarantees. And so I added the generally there to make that clear. This doesn't happen all the time. Injustice does exist in the world. But on the whole, Proverbs puts forth a very positive result for the one who works hard and makes wise decisions. And again, we don't need to look very far to see that this is much easier said than it is done. Just look at our culture. Right? We've adopted so much of this culture's me first, me now, me want mentality where we don't want to put in the time or the work, right? We don't want to save. We don't want to gather little by little. We don't want to put aside in the future for this or for that. We don't want to work hard. Why? Because we want it now, because we deserve it now, and we can put it on our credit card now, or we can borrow cheap money from the bank to make it happen as fast as possible, even though we don't know how we're going to pay it off because we deserve it now. You know what I mean? There are so many excuses for hard work. I could work there, but, you know, I'm kind of overqualified for that. With the pay, it's not, not really as great as maybe I'd like it to be. I think they should actually be happy that I want to work for them. It means I'd have to get up, you know, a little bit earlier than I'd like to or drive a little further than I'd like to drive. So many excuses we can make for working hard. But you see, the Bible has no time for that kind of ethic. Second Thessalonians very clearly says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I do think part of this is about just correcting maybe our Christian theology of work. Work is very good. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's hard. But listen, through your work, through your productivity, you have the privilege of participating in the good mandate of God to fill the earth to multiply, to subdue the earth. You have the privilege of imitating the creative work of God if you are in the business of creating new products. Maybe it's putting your energy or time into refining processes or making better products or services that add value to other people's lives and contribute to the flourishing of mankind. Friends, work, though painful and toilsome, yes, because of the fall is a good and meaningful thing. But it's through this means of diligence, of patience, of careful labor that Proverbs says we can seek to acquire honorable wealth not by some hastily gained get-rich-quick scheme. We also see in Proverbs 13.11 that honorable wealth that lasts is often contrasted with dishonorable wealth that ends in poverty. And it's important that we talk about poverty briefly because Proverbs on the whole uh, displays poverty as a negative thing. Now, I'm not talking about the poor, but the status or the position of poverty is seen as not desirable. A few verses for you. Proverbs 10, 15. A rich's man is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Another one, Proverbs 14, 21. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. Now Solomon's not saying that this is good or this is the way that it should be, but just more matter-of-factly, this is the way that it is. 
And one author asks, why does it seem like the Proverbs present this negative picture of poverty, right? Is it just to kind of kick the poor while they're down already? And the answer, I think, is emphatically no. I think what God is up to, one, is He wants us to be motivated to care for the poor, to see the predicament, the reality of their predicament, and to care for them. But I also think, number two, He wants everyone to listen to advice on how the wise person avoids poverty. And so He paints an ugly picture of it so you and I won't be foolish Now, furthermore, it's important to realize that many people experience the challenges of poverty uh, and not because of any personal sin, right? It could be due to a a natural disaster like earthquakes or floods, things that displace people. It could be a lack of knowledge or a a marketable skill. It could be that you live uh, under an economic system that doesn't promote productivity or a government that exploits or oppresses its people around the world, there are lots of reasons why poverty still exists in our sin-cursed world that don't have to do with a person's individual sin. But the main point, or the main idea in our point here is highlighting that it's also very possible to become poor as a result of your sinful choices, right? There is a foolish one who strives to gain wealth hastily and ends in poverty versus a wise and diligent one who acquires little by little, which leads to, to greater prosperity. So where are you at? Do you run from hard work? Do you look for shortcuts? Are you looking to get ahead at the expense of others? Are you caught up in this idea of keeping up with the Joneses, despite maybe the Bible's warning of the devastating consequences that that could have? Ultimately, God's Word calls us not to take shortcuts, right? Don't cheat, Don't lie, don't oppress, don't take advantage of other people, but rather work hard. Make wise decisions and trust that that path will generally lead to acquiring honorable wealth. Number two, Proverbs tells us that honorable wealth avoids the dangerous pitfalls. Avoids the dangerous pitfalls. And you can open your Bibles to Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. We don't know much about Augur, uh, whose words are quoted in Proverbs 30, but he reminds us of this truth. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So here we have represented uh, both extremes of wealth and poverty and the unique temptations that come to those who are in each of these positions. At first he says to the Lord, "Don't, don't give me riches. Don't give me riches because if you do, I'm liable to, and here's the first pitfall, to be self-sufficient. Right? Who's the Lord? I don't need the Lord. Look at all this stuff that I've got. I don't need anyone else to provide for me. I don't need to trust God. I've done it myself. Look at all this money. I'm good to go. Right? But he also says, don't allow me to be poor because I'm liable to do whatever it takes to make a living 
including steal. And I hope you see the point is not that all super wealthy people are self-sufficient and self-righteous in the same way that not all poor people steal, right? The, part, the point is that the reality of the human heart shows us that there are dangers in having extreme wealth and extreme poverty, and we need to guard against these pitfalls. So the first one is self-sufficiency. Another pitfall that we see in the book of Proverbs is the belief that wealth gives us ultimate security. Okay, the belief that wealth gives us ultimate security. Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. The rich man in this proverb imagines himself. He's very safe. He's protected. He's got this hedge around him. And the reality is, it's in his imagination. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Where are you placing your trust this morning? Where is your identity and your security found? And has that shifted as the Lord has increased your prosperity? Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. And so whatever your measure of wealth is today, do not place your trust in it. Do not fall prey to the idea that you can find ultimate security in it, right? Your material status does not insulate you from the judgment of God. Only the righteousness of Christ can deliver from death. And so Proverbs reminds us that as we acquire measures of wealth, We need to guard against the pride of self-sufficiency. We need to remember that our security is not ultimately found in the number in our bank account or in any material thing that we have, but in the Lord who provides. And lastly, we need to avoid the dangerous pitfall of servitude, of servitude. If we had time to survey the biblical landscape, we would see this pitfall all over the place. I mean, we could preach countless messages on this truth, but let's just take it this morning from Jesus, Solomon, and Paul. Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, you can't serve money and God. Ecclesiastes 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Jesus again, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul. Keep your life free from the love of money, Hebrews 13, 15. The last one, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, wealth creation is a good thing. Wealth idolization is not a good thing. Okay, we've been called to use money, not to serve money. And you see, the Bible clearly warns us, yes, wealth comes with strong temptations toward greed, toward materialism, toward self-sufficiency, and ultimately idolatry, and calls those of us who obtain some measure of financial prosperity, not to set our hopes on them, but on God. But I do think it's worth saying that, you know, all of these temptations um, can plague the human heart no matter what your economic status is, right? Materialism, we understand, uh, is a sin of the heart, not a sin of circumstance. 
Randy Alcorn says this, a materialist attaches the wrong price tags to the things of the world and to the things of God. And you can do that as a poor person who can't afford that thing, but yet believes that that thing will bring you ultimate happiness if only you got it. Or you can think that as a wealthy person who has that thing and is striving to seek some measure of satisfaction in it. Greed as well can be seen in someone's possessiveness of something you already own, but also in someone's covetousness of the things that they want to have but maybe aren't able to afford. And so all along the spectrum of poverty and wealth, we can find ourselves giving too much of a priority to it. So what are we to do? Right? How does um, the, the reality of these dangers impact how we are to think about wealth? Should we just abandon everything? Or should we just turn back to poverty and, and, and leave everything behind? Does greater poverty lead to greater piety? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 11 to 18, there's a great passage from Scripture where God warns the people of Israel through Moses. And He, he talks about when He is going to bless them in the future. He's going to bless them with great prosperity, and He warns them about the great temptations that will come. Let's read what that says. It's going to be up on the screen. He says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and you've built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God. The Lord your God who who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, with its thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power And the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. No, remember, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. Temptations come along with prosperity, but not because prosperity is evil in and of itself, right? Notice that God doesn't tell Israel to turn back to Egypt, turn back to poverty as if that's a better solution, but instead He warns them, guard your heart. Remember me. Remember my word. Remember all of the things that I have done for you. Remember your dependence is upon me. Your security, your provision, all of these things are truly found in me. And you are called not to serve those build houses that you've built or that good uh, uh, silver or gold, but you're called to serve me. See, these temptations are best countered not by running, not by squandering our skills or by burying the talent that God has given us, but by digging into the Word of God, by moral example, by teaching that equips us to recognize that, yes, we are standing in a minefield. But guess what? God is with us, and He has given us the map of His Word and the body of Christ, right? Godly family and friends in His church, so that by His grace, we can traverse through the terrain of this world, and we can grab onto one another when we recognize that we're walking dangerously 
If we want to be those who have honorable wealth, we need to acquire it on the diligent path. And we need to avoid these dangerous pitfalls. And one of the best motivators to do that is by understanding this, that God gives wealth to thirdly advance the divine platform. To advance the divine platform. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, Solomon says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I want to focus in on the first few words of this proverb, okay? Honor the Lord. Other ways that we could say that would be this. Highly respect and esteem the Lord. With regard to your wealth, put Him in a place of distinction. Give tribute to the Lord with your wealth and revere Him. And this verse really calls us to ask two very important questions with regard to our wealth. Okay, first, the first question is this. What is my motivation? What is my motivation? Friends, who are you trying to honor with your wealth? Who is it that you're trying to hold in high esteem? Whose image are you trying to preserve and protect? You see, we live in a world where the motivation for wealth is so earthly. It's so self-focused, so short-sighted, right? It's about me. It's about uh, accumulation for accumulation's sake. I want to build my own kingdom. I want to do whatever I want with the money I have because, you know, I did give that one little percent or two to the church. But here's the reality. If the goodness of your own life is the primary motivation for your wealth, your theology of money is too thin. You're missing the point. It's hollow. God has a purpose for your dollars, right? God in His kingdom has given you a measure of wealth so that you can honor Him with it. This is not about you. This is about Him. This is about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. This is about being so motivated by the glory of God and His, and His Word that yes, you toil, yes, you work, yes, you earn, yes, you invest, and yes, you flee from the temptations of sin, but you do so so that you don't rob yourself of the opportunity of honoring God with your wealth. You know, there are lots of people who have made a lot of money in the right way. And there's lots of people who have made a lot of money in the right way and avoided these dangerous pitfalls and yet have failed to recognize that God is going to hold them accountable for their heart motivation and for how they've used what God has given to them. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, and we need to have a clear answer. What is my motivation? Is my motivation in alignment with my calling to honor Him? Does my heart love God? Does my heart glorify God? Secondly, Actually, I want to say one more thing. Just for the record, uh, by no means am I saying that there is no place for us to enjoy the gift of money, okay? Um, we can buy this or that. We can spend our money wisely on something that gives us joy. But the reason I haven't majored on that is because I fear that the problem with us is that most of us already believe that that's the primary reason for the wealth that we have, Okay, which I hope you can see is not the case. So first, what is my motivation? Secondly, what is my mo uh, mission? Sorry, what is my mission? Okay? And it's imperative that we deal with the motivation first for this reason. The heart that's motivated by the glory of God 
um, needs very little persuasion to get on board with advancing the purposes and the mission of God. If you love God, you don't need to be persuaded all that much to say, hey, what does God want me to do with my money? And so, that's why we dealt with motivation firstly. But this is what I've called the, the divine platform, right? A platform is a plan. It's an agenda. It's a declaration of principles on which a group or person stands. And my point is this. The Word of God is clear. God has given us this tool called money for His agenda, for His platform, for His mission. And within the book of Proverbs, we do kind of get a glimpse of this in part. Proverbs 14.21 says this, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 13, or sorry, 14.31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. One more verse, Proverbs 22.9, Whoever has a bountiful, that is a generous eye, will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. 2 Corinthians 9, 11 communicates uh, God's agenda in a more general and helpful way, I think. Paul says, you have been enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. If I could sum up this principle for us this morning, it would be this. God's mission for our money is that we would reciprocate his grace by giving generously to advance the gospel and His glory. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. God's mission for our money is that we would reciprocate His grace by giving generously to advance the gospel and His glory. What an opportunity lies before us. What a tool we have to wield for eternal impact. You know, millions of people around the world have been impacted by the ministry of the late Ravi Zacharias. Many, I'm sure, in this room, but not many people know the name of D.D. D. Davis. D.D. D. Davis was a businessman, a man who loved the gospel, a man who heard Ravi Zacharias preach when Ravi was at a crossroads in his life. He felt the Lord was leading him to start an apologetics ministry, but didn't have the capital to do that, really didn't know how, how to even get started with that. And so he was preaching at a layman's conference, and Didi was there. And at the end of the conference, Ravi just made a general request to the men that were there that they would pray for him and his wife. Didn't really get into any of the details, but just asking that, that they would pray for wisdom from God for them. And so Didi Davis went back to his hotel room, got on his knees, and he prayed for Ravi. And he felt compelled by the Lord to give 50 grand to Ravi Zacharias. And D.D. Davis became the financial backbone to a small ministry startup at the time called RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. You see, it took D.D. Davis to say, I with my wealth that God has given me, I will stand behind you. Go and do what God has called you to do. Every generation needs an individual who will stand up and preach the, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. And every generation needs individuals who have the capacity, the motivation, and understand the mission of God to sacrificially support the preaching of Jesus Christ with boldness. And though maybe you're sitting in your chair this morning and you're saying, yeah, but I don't, 
I don't have the capacity to give what D.D. Davis gave. I mean, what, what can I do? I would say that's okay. Guess what? God doesn't ask you to give the same thing that he asked D.D. Davis to give. Now, maybe you're sitting there saying, well, well, Mark, I'm compelled. I get what you're saying. I want to get on board. How do I begin? What do I do? And I would just say this. It starts in your own home. Look at your budget. People don't like that word. Um, but you need to know where your money is going so that you know whether or not you're stewarding it well. Do you know? And, and one way maybe that you can tell that you're stewarding well is by answering this question, how does my budget look differently from my unbelieving neighbor's budget? Okay, get clear on that. That's the first thing. Secondly, I would say ask the Lord for direction. You know, Tara, my wife, and I, we are not per- perfect at this by any means. Um, but one habit that we've come to appreciate that we've, we've, we've started to form is after we do our, our monthly budget together, we just take a minute and we pray. And we just say, Lord, um, you know, we've done the best uh, that we can in our wisdom to kind of forecast what the next month is going to bring. And, you know, we've put that down on paper. But God, ultimately, you know, right? You know what this month is going to bring. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would open our hands to whatever comes across our path. Lord, give us opportunities to be generous and give us the desire to step in and to sacrifice and to meet the needs of people as you see fit. And so for you, just ask the Lord. Ask the Lord for opportunities and believe in faith that he will bring them about. And then thirdly, give. Give. Give generously. Give regularly. Give consistently. Give to the local church from which you receive fellowship and blessing from the Word of God. If you receive the Word of God, if you receive blessing from the local church, you need to support the work of the gospel here. I can say that because I'm not the senior pastor, okay? But this is true. You need to support the work of the gospel from God's Word. Give to specific ministries. Give to organizations that love the Lord and that preach the gospel, like the Pregnancy Care Center as an example. Give to others in need. Give to the poor, as Proverbs highlighted. This is the heart of God. You know, D.D. Davis, he had no idea how the Lord would take his investment at that time in the kingdom and multiply its eternal impact all around the world. And you and I don't know either. But here's the reality. God calls us to be faithful to give. And so we do that. And we watch and we wait and we see how the Lord will bless our investment in His work. So be diligent. Work hard. Earn what God allows you to earn and then open your hands. And ask the Lord to lead you with a generous heart to meet the needs of others and to work to advance His gospel and glory in the world. You know, at the end of the day, I realize this whole message has been about wealth. And yet, the Proverbs remind us that though wealth is more desirable than poverty, it's not everything. Right? Wealth is not everything. Wealth can never satisfy you. Wealth can never make you holy. Wealth can never save you from your sins. You know, the reality is one author explains it is that you can't understand a biblical view of money unless you're prepared to accept a number of truths held in tension. For example, you'll probably acquire more money if you work hard and are full of wisdom. But if all you care about is getting more money, you are the biggest fool. God gives you money so that you can be generous with others. And guess what? If you are generous with your money, God will likely be more generous with you. 
It's wise to save money, no doubt, but don't ever think that money gives you real security. And wealth is more desirable than poverty. But wealth is not as good as righteousness, as humility, as wisdom, as good relationships, or the fear of the Lord. We need to hold wealth in the right perspective because true wealth is not found in money, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Christ, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor so that we by his poverty could become rich. In the Bible we read that Adam and Eve, they didn't value the relationship that they had with God, so they squandered it for a get-satisfied-quick scheme, right, that ended in spiritual poverty for them and for the rest of mankind. But Jesus, he did not leave us in our spiritual poverty, right? We believe that Christ came, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died a, a substitutionary death upon the cross and rose from the grave so that those who were bound by spiritual poverty, those who were bound in their sin could be freed to live for something so much greater and so much better than yourselves, to live for Christ and to enjoy all of the spiritual riches that are found in Him. If you do not know Christ today, let me compel you. Come to Him. See the emptiness of this world. Repent of the sin of searching for self-satisfaction in the things that you have and recognize that you can have true wealth. You can have true joy, friends, but it is not found in the things of this world. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we find joy and understand the privilege that it is to use the wealth that we acquire through diligence, to participate in the work of God, and to be found faithful to advance His platform in this world. Let's pray. God, we bow our hearts before you this morning with this desire. And Lord, I just pray that you would compel us, oh God. Help us to see, Lord, that your wisdom and your way of wealth is so much greater than the world's way of wealth that we can so easily become deceived by. Forgive us, God. And I pray, Lord, that in this church, in this hour that you would raise up an army of generous and faithful givers who recognize the value of their dollars and recognize the eternal impact that it could have. Lord, use what we bring to spread the gospel and your glory throughout the world. But ultimately, we ask that Jesus Christ would be our vision, that he would be the one upon which we fix our eyes. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.